The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper, and wonderful to uh, be back again on the Business Elevation Show. And today I'm going to introduce you to Mark Beresford-Smith. He's the head of economics at HSBC Commercial Bank. And we're going to talk about economics today and all the things that you need to know if you're you know, a small business owner uh, or medium-sized business and you're thinking about how to interpret what's actually happening right now. And before I introduce you to Mark, I want to say a big thank you to my guest last week, uh, Danny Innie. Uh, Danny talked to me about how to create educational products online. He's an absolute master of doing this um, over in the United States. And there was some really fantastic content in there for anyone involved in um, developing educational content, learning and development material, uh, wanting to develop programs uh, that are online as well as offline. I'd really recommend going into it. It's uh, some real gold dust in there. So what a year, 2016. Uh, I thought I'd, uh, I couldn't see any more big surprises after Leicester City won the Premier League. However, that was completely dwarfed into insignificance with a Brexit in the UK and the presidential outcome in the United States. Uh, so few people really saw these things uh, coming. But how can we navigate our businesses in these uncharted waters in 2017 and beyond? And I'm really, really delighted today to, uh, to welcome my guest, Mark Beresford-Smith. Uh, Mark, as I mentioned, is the Head of Economics for HSBC uh, Commercial Banking. Um, a little bit about Mark's background. He studied economics at Sussex and London universities. He's now Head of Economics, as I mentioned, for the commercial banking business of HSBC in the UK. And he's responsible for advising the bank in the UK and its business customers on developments in the British and the global economies. And within this remit, he's taken a keen interest in monitoring developments in the euro area and also China. But more recently, his work's focused on explaining the mechanics and the economic consequences of the UK's decision to leave the EU. Now, Mark undertakes an extensive program of public speaking at conferences and events. Um, and it was actually at an event uh, that I saw Mark. And Mark speaks at about well, 150 of these a year, I think. And... As I mentioned, I saw Mark. I was uh, introduced to uh, Mark through uh, Lucy, one of the area directors at uh, HSBC, who's been a a fantastic person to to get to know. And and I saw Mark uh, talking about Brexit, and I was really, really impressed by him, about how articulate he was, um, about his thoughts, how he made the, the session engaging. And I think it's particularly impressive to have that ability to stand in front of a large audience and articulate in an engaging way But Mark also does this um, when he's actually um, blind. 
So I just thought he was truly inspirational, and I'm delighted, therefore, you know, to have him on the show to share a little bit about his story, but also talk with us about the economics that are affecting us today and those things that we need to be aware of. So a huge welcome today to Mark Beresford-Smith. Hi, thank you, Chris, and uh, good to be here. You're welcome, Mark. And uh, you live down in um, in sort of sunny and leafy Hampshire, is that correct, in the south of England? Yeah, I'm in the north part of the county of Hampshire. I'm sat in our uh, very small um, office in our house. Uh, I'm about 40 miles southwest of London. It's a beautiful part of the world down there. And I mean, Mark, will you tell us a bit about about your childhood and um, you know where you grew up and you know, what, what happened to you and what eventually gravitated you towards economics? Yeah, uh, I am. Um, I haven't moved very far um, uh, because I was born only about 12 miles away from here. Oh, right. uh, um, but that was a long time ago in the late 1950s. Uh, and I, I had a, um, an inherited eye condition, which fortunately nobody would get these days because the um, MMR vaccine would, um, which we, which, which, uh, um, which, people get would, would ensure that um, that simply couldn't happen. Uh, so I lost my sight eventually uh, at about the age of four. Uh, now, in the 1960s, things were rather different than they are now. These, th- these days, you would be kept in uh, mainstream education. But in the early 1960s here in the UK, you were packed off to boarding school. So I was, I was away at boarding school before my sixth birthday. Um, would, I, would I send my kids to boarding school? Uh, absolutely not. Um, was it an entirely bad thing for me? Equally, absolutely not. Um, it, it was a good educational ethos. I learned a lot. It, it suited me in many respects. Um, but times have moved on. It certainly, it certainly wouldn't happen now. Um, and, and as I grew up, I was always interested in the news. I was always interested in politics. I don't know whether it's because I'm blind or not, but I do have a I do have a very good memory. I have a, I have a very good memory for all sorts of useful facts and figures. So, in the end, fifty years on, standing up and doing presentations, in a way, suits me. It's my niche because I don't really struggle to remember it. So, if you say to me, stand up and talk for an hour on some aspect of the economy, I can do that. And I won't forget the important bits or the important numbers. I can keep all that in my head. Um, so yeah, economics was with me right from the start. I, I joined the bank from university. I did have early hankerings to be a banker. Um, and I did a few exams. But then I decided it was all far too boring and I'd best stick with economics, but working within a bank um, which gave me, you know, which gave me a good source of employment in order to um, uh, f- follow what's always been my interest. And one of the things I, you know, wonder. I've got a couple of other some people that I know in my my sort of network who are also blind. And the thing that I find is that uh, that they do tend to also have good memories. But what you have is with them is really really engaging one to one conversations and. You know that in this world where there's so many things to sort of visually look at uh, and and hear, um, you know, do you think there's actually an advantage in some respects that gives you when it comes to engaging with others? And no, I'm not sure I've ever noticed that. Um, pe- people say I should have better hearing. I don't. Um, people say I should listen better. Um, I don't think that's true either. <laughs> um, and most. Uh, at the end of the day, most aspects of not being able to see are just a are just a heck of a nuisance. 
um, you know, the day-to-day stuff that everybody else takes for granted is is just such a hassle. And, and there's no getting away from that and there's no changing it. I mean, te- technology has helped enormously in the last 10 years, especially. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful that I've been able to, to work all my life um, and you know, earn decent money and all the rest of it. But you know, it's, been, it's been one hell of a hassle and it still is. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't get that much better. Um, things things improve around the margins, but it, but in the end, just you're getting yourself from one place to another um, is is still it, it's, it's still it's still troublesome, uh, especially in a job like mine where I'm where I'm travelling all the time. And there's kind of quite a there's always a lack of awareness with with people. I was somebody a lovely girl that I I, I coach around her speaking, and she's. Um, she lost her eyesight about 14 years ago and you know, I've met her in places like Starbucks and when you walk, I walked down the stairs with her recently to Starbucks and they put chairs at the bottom of the stairs to stop anybody going up. And they've seen us come up there with her, with her dog and you think, like, what? You know, just a lack of awareness. <laughs> it, it's, um, it, it's always there and the, the, the thing is what you, yeah, what you learn after, uh, after many years is it, is it, it never changes. That you, 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 know, you will never educate um society and how to handle people who are different on a consistent basis because even if one generation gets the hang uh, it's still got to be passed on to the next generation so you still come across the same things time and time again and you and yours will do yours will do of uh, often it's you know it's often that people don't know you need help often they help you too much um yes and it's very difficult dealing with people on a day-in-day basis um if i if i travel into london at regular peak time People, most of the people on those trades have probably seen me before and they know to leave me alone. If you're going at offbeat times, all sorts of people try to help me. I don't, I don't need help. I usually know where I'm going better than they do. <laughs> but, but obviously you, you can't, you don't want to send them away because for all you know, you might be six foot from falling off a, a hole that somebody has suddenly dug in the floor and not told you. Yes. So you, it's, it's very careful. It's very tempting just to sort of, you know, when you're at the end of a long day to tell them to go away. But, but you can't always be entirely sure that you're not going to walk into something. Yes, yes. And, 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 and the other abiding impression is that whenever you, whenever you think you've got it cracked, something happens. You know, you think, oh, I can, uh, I can navigate this bit of London. I can navigate this bit of the office. Fire! You, you rush into the lift. You press the button, and you don't listen to the automated announcement. And the next thing you know, you're out on the wrong floor. Mm. And then you just, and then you just feel an idiot. <laughs> that happens, <laughs> and that happens all the time, and it still happens. So, how would you just? And it's really helpful that conversation. To, now, how how would you like people to be with you? Uh, Ideally, ideally offer help if they think I'm in any danger, or if I think, or if they think I look lost. Yes. Um, the trouble is, my my um, I suppose the skill I, I have to learn is is how to is it, I have to learn how to look lost, and how to look as if I'm not lost, and then and then it, and then and then it might and then it might all be rather easier. And I think the other people, the other thing people have to accept is that if you're blind and you're walking about, you are never going to be terribly elegant. You won't take the same paths and routes across spaces as other people will take. You won't do it the same way as they do. And, and because you do it a bit differently, they tend to think you need help, whereas actually you're just doing it your own way. Mm. Mm. Um, so you, you'll, never be, you'll never be terribly elegant at it, uh, but you might have found ways that work to get you from one part of a, 
you know, from one part of a railway station to another part. Mm. So let's, let's uh, I might just come back to it again just in a, in, in a minute, but let's uh, just talk about just HSBC in case there's people listening, um, you know, people listen to the show in over 50 countries. So some people won't have heard of HSBC, although they're a you know, huge name and brand over here. Um, just tell us a little bit about what they do. Um, it's a bank and a very big one. Um, one of the world's biggest. Um, I recently started working for what was Midland Bank in the UK. Uh, we were bought by HSBC in 1992. And HSBC's roots are originally in the Far East. So originally the HSBC stood for the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. So its roots are as a Far Eastern trade bank. Uh, but it's now in... I forget the current number of countries. I don't want to quote it in case I'm told off for having got it wrong. But it's, uh, it's. Uh, I don't think it's as many as eighty anymore. Um, but it's, it's quite. Yeah, we're, we're in a lot of countries around the world. Um, we're certainly in. You know, we're certainly in, in in most in many parts of Europe, and, and we're certainly in the states. Now, now you've, you know, you we, we talked about your you know, a little bit about your background. You were sharing that with us, and you clearly achieved well in your career. And you you said you wanted to be. Uh, interested in being in um, in banking, but then economics uh, became your interest. And you know, it seems to me that you've got a great niche as a business speaker at HSBC. And I wonder, you know, how you've learned to advance your career um, with uh, you know visual impairment, and uh, and you know, and have you you know have you have any sort of tips that you can recommend to others who are in that same sort of situation? Because I know there's one or two people who are you know interested in that who are listening at the moment. Um, if I'm if I'm being frank, I think I'd have to say that as a visually impaired person in a large company, it's still quite hard to um, navigate your way through the standard career ladders. I think it's easier than it was. I think you'd stand a better chance now of getting taken on a graduate recruitment scheme, for instance, than was the case um, when I joined, which was a long time ago. But I still think it's quite hard. Um, many, you know, many. Um, you know, people who will interview you will still be wary about taking you on and giving you a job. So I'm afraid I think the best um, option is is to go niche, find something that you can do that not many others can do and get on that way. So I, I, I spent about the first 20 years of my career uh, writing research and I was I was quite happy doing that. And especially in you know in in the in the eighties and nineties when when people had more appetite to read um, you know reports that ran to fifty or sixty pages. Um, by the late nineties, I think I'd realised that the, that the future was was going to be in standing up and speaking. And so, for the past twenty years, most of my career has been about client engagement. So, in in effect, I'm now a part of the bank's marketing function. Uh, I help them do their marketing. I help our teams around the country interact and engage with their clients. Um, you could, uh, our teams could take them out and play golf. They could take them um, to a horse racing meeting or something like that, uh, but not this time of year. So how do you how do you engage with your clients? How do you how do you find ways of having conversations? You know, we, uh, as a as a commercial bank, we pride we pride ourselves on our relationships. We're a relationship bank, so if we're a relationship bank, we have to talk to our customers, and we have to find reasons to talk to our customers to have conversations with them, and that's and that's what I help deliver. Um, <clears throat> I'm afraid to say, I mean, it, it it might not be as true 
in other countries to the same degree as in the UK. But in in the UK, if you if you if you put on a breakfast event and uh, invite all your clients along and say, come and hear, uh, come and hear so and so talk about our great new suite of products. Um, the average British businessman won't come because he'll be frightened that somebody's going to jump on him and sell him something. Uh, I don't think that's quite as true in other countries, but in, but, uh, but in Britain we're very reluctant about being uh, about being about being openly sold to. So if you want people along, you put a flyer out, say, "Come and hear our economists speak," and then they'll all turn up. Mm. I think you get the balance nice. Uh, I've been to a few of your events, and indeed, I was actually at one last night, and I think uh, you get a nice balance in you know networking and uh, and interesting talks and that are quite engaging. And indeed, I've spoken myself at one of your events, yeah. and you know enjoyed it. So I think you get the balance well. I'm going to ask you uh, a quick question. We've got two minutes, um, and uh, hopefully, you can articulate this in in a short period of time. Um, we're going to talk about economics, and just to set us up into the next. Um, sort of section how would you define it and why is it a value to small and medium-sized businesses and if you don't finish we can continue okay. break <laughs> economics ultimately is about how societies allocate resources um, that's what you study when you study economics um, but what it's about for businesses is about understanding the external forces that are likely to impact on their businesses. Now, us economists will often get excited by things like growth and unemployment and productivity, which is all very interesting and does have a bearing. But on the day to day, what 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 matters for businesses is what is is, is what's happening in their in their environment. What um, yes, growth can matter, but often doesn't. Um, you know, you, if the if the economy is booming or if it's in recession, it will make a huge difference to a business. If the economy grows by 2% one year and 2.5% the next year, it's going to make no difference at all. But they will be interested in all sorts of other things. You know, what, what, what does all that mean for the, for the cost of resources? What does it mean for the inputs they have to buy? What does it mean for hiring labour? What does it mean for the commodities they buy? And if they're trading internationally, what does it mean for the exchange rates? Yes. And then there will be other big issues that come from the politics, um, you know, like you know, the things that are going on in the labour market, labour availability, uh, which which were, which at the moment in the UK, for instance, brings us straight back to Brexit. Fantastic. Well, per- perfect. We've just uh, perfectly now ready for the commercial break. Couldn't have been better. So uh, after the break, we're going to talk about obviously some of the fundamental um, economics um things that might be on your mind right now, things like Brexit. We're also going to talk about Donald Trump and we'll talk about uh, one or two other things as well. So uh, do join us. Uh, Come back to us again. Uh, We'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. 
Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the business elevation show with your host chris cooper if you have a question or comment about our show please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk that's chris at chriscooper.co.uk now back to chris cooper Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Mark Beresford-Smith, um, Head of Economics at HSBC. We're talking about, about economics uh, today. Although, indeed, actually, we were talking about your favourite album in the break, weren't we? Um, we were, indeed. <laughs> it turns out, yeah, it was, it was, um, we had Chris White on the show, the saxophone player of Dire Straits, and it's a Dire Straits album. Why, why do you like that? Why do you like um, on, on the Night? I like, yes. On the Night is probably my favourite album of all times. It's a, uh, for those who aren't aware of it it's a dire straits live album from the early 1990s uh and it, i think it's just dire straits at their best that sort of band i think always always sounds best live rather than recorded uh, i just think that album brings together the saxophone playing and of course Noffler's guitar playing uh in a in, in a way that i've always found quite spellbinding it's it's been my favorite album you know ever since it was released it still is Excellent. Well, I shall forward this across to Chris White, and uh, he'll be pleased to hear that, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so w- uh, let's talk about um, economics then. Um, what do you think uh, are the most fundamental in economic concerns that we, we, we should be mindful of uh, right now? Well, I think the first thing to say is that there have been a lot of economic concerns ever since the financial crisis. Uh, the problem now is that uh, with Brexit on this side of the, of the Atlantic, and certainly with the arrival of Mr. Trump uh, over in America, uh, that list of concerns has now got a whole heap longer. So there, there was lots to worry about before. Um, there's now just rather more to worry about. In some senses, it's as much political as economic, but there will be economic implications. I think that's very clear. So I, I like to characterise the global economy in uh, medical parlance. Uh, now, I don't know whether the rest of the world has this phrase, but, uh, but over in the UK, a patient that hangs around in a hospital bed who prevents anybody else from having it is known as a bed blocker. And the global economy seems to me to be the ultimate bed blocker. It's been languishing in a rather sorry state these past eight years. And I think we've now got to the point where none of the medics quite seem to know what to do next or if they have ideas they can't agree so if you look around the world we have we have a variety of problems we've got interest rates still on the floor in most countries which which is which causes enormous headaches for savers 
um, enormous headaches for anybody who has to provide pensions for their for their um, for their employees. Uh, we have a distinct absence of inflation, suggesting that a lot of economies are running below capacity or not working properly. Um, some places we still have far too much debt, and we seem to have a policy vacuum. And then we have other countries. Uh, we have some countries who are who are now being severely hobbled by by the demographics of aging. Yeah, and there's and there's other things you can think of too, but but none of this has really been sorted out. So yeah, up until a few years ago, you might have you might have hoped we were just on a gradual transition process back to good health. I think we've given that notion up now. I don't think anybody thinks we're getting better. You know, the patient has been kicked out of the hospital, told to go away. Nobody thinks he's cured. Nobody thinks he's going to be cured. Um, and everybody thinks that the chances of a relapse are quite high, but there's nothing more anybody seems to be able to do with him. And in economics, what that translates to is that the sort of, you know, the global, you know, the global um, vehicles for cooperation, be it the G20, be it the IMF, uh, none of them seem to have ideas of what might be done, or if they have ideas, nobody wants to do them. So we have all these G20 meetings, they meet twice a year, they're all very grand and absolutely nothing gets done. And so, you know, so we are we are meandering we are we are meandering along. Um, we're not in a bad as, as bad a state as we were in the 1930s, although there are some rather uncomfortable echoes. And into all of this comes Brexit and Donald Trump. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you're talking there about you know, it's not being it's this vacuum. It's not really being being sorted out, but. With those D20 meetings, they're full of politicians, aren't they, with their own interests? Uh, and we, you know, we hear today, we've heard today, and we'll, we'll come on to Trump. You know, we've been talking about um, America first. It's not. Is that conducive with sorting out a global economy? Um, uh, certainly, Donald Donald Trump's speech last Friday, his inauguration speech, did, I have to say, worry me quite deeply. Um, it was a very dark speech. I don't think it needed to be that dark. Uh, there are clearly issues, but I don't think I, I don't think things are that bad, and I certainly don't think things are that bad in America. And I, I, I know Mr. Trump has has an issue with the way some of the labour market statistics get reported, but uh, and there are some Americans who have left clearly left the the labour market because they become disheartened and given up. But but the numbers are not massive, and the unemployment rate in America is is under five percent. The economy the, the the economy is actually. Uh, performed reasonably well in recent years. Okay, it's not grown at the rate it did during the Goldilocks years in the late nineties, but I don't think it was ever going to. Um, and so I, I think the, I think I think the Trump campaign has overegged the economic woes of America. Um, you know, there are plenty of economic issues around the world, but you can point to America, to Britain, and Germany. And all of those economies are now working at pretty close to full capacity. Um, so, you know, they are they are the bits that have done relatively well. Mm. So in a way, it is a bit surprising that it's turned out to be the Brits and the Americans who have been the ones to upset the global apple cart. You know, it wasn't the Spanish, wasn't the Italians or not so far uh, and not the French so far. Um, but the but the upsetting of the global apple cart started in Britain and then went to America. Mm. And that's quite quite interesting, that isn't it? If they think uh, 
you know, has, has some of this come, for example, let's talk about Brexit. Um, has some, of, you know, there were concerns about the amounts of money that we were putting in to maybe proper other nations and that sort of thing. Is there, you know, an aspect of wanting to go back to uh, being, you know, Britain again, not governed by others because we we think we do what we do well. I, yeah, I, I, I was always. I was always nervous ahead of the Brexit referendum. Um, I have to say, I did want us to leave. And until shortly before the vote, I did think we would. Um, but I always thought that the Leave side would get a strong enough showing that the issue would not go away. The problem with referendums is, is, they, is they seem like a very good idea. But actually, unless, unless you get a very clear cut outcome, um, you don't tend to solve anything. Uh, you end up uh, they uh, they end up being like sort of I think a Canadian politician I can't remember who described them as the new as the nuclear bombs of democracy. They once they go off they take an awful lot of clearing up. Now we had a referendum here in the UK five years ago on electoral reform. Nobody cared. Nobody voted. Uh, the result was clear cut. That issue went away. But it's something like this that's fairly finely balanced. It doesn't go away. And, and even now, even though we've made a decision, it doesn't necessarily go away. It's, it's, still, there to, it's still there to play for um, you know, in a year's time, in 10 years' time, in 30 years' time. It hasn't, it hasn't gone away. It's just that you know, the opposition hasn't yet got organised. It may be that it never will get organised. Um, certainly, it's not obvious at the moment how it will, but it, but it could do. I mean, if 48% don't want something... Um, there is actually quite a good chance that you know, at some point they are going to have a say in how the process how the process works. It was quite interesting, I think, with, with that and the, the referendum. I, I do believe, and, and I've spoken to a lot of people about this, I do believe that a lot of people really didn't understand what they're actually voting for and the, the consequences. I remember my wife, for example, going into her office and there was a whole, you know, there was t- 10 women in there all in um all, all tearful the day after it happened because they just not, didn't think it was going to happen but they'd all voted to leave <laughs> and uh, yeah i really don't think people I, understood i don't think the politicians helped them understand either no I, I think there is a there is a there is a penchant i think the brits are especially guilty of this of of using various um political electoral events as a way of giving your politicians a bit of a kicking uh, without actually changing anything and there will there will without doubt have been people who went to the polling booths last June who voted to leave but who didn't really want to leave but just wanted it to be close to shake the political establishment up um, I, I, I hope that if nothing else we've been taught a right good lesson that when you go to vote on anything like this you do it properly and you don't do it because it might be fun or it might make it interesting or any or any of those other reasons that you actually Think about it seriously, and and think about what the consequences will be. Yeah, yeah. But it, but but in, but in the end of the day, I, I also think there's a there's a great tendency to overanalyze this stuff, and we've we've had lots of talk in Britain and America about you know the left behinds over here. We we talk about the jams, the just about managings. It may just be in the end of the day as simple as Americans didn't trust Hillary Clinton, and the Brits didn't like Europe. And if and if they couldn't understand what they were voting about, then that probably suggested me that it was all too complicated. Um, and one, I think, one of the other abiding lessons of this is if we, 
ever get into anything like this again, we've got to keep it much simpler. Europe, Europe is far too complicated. So how are we doing on this journey to the transition, do you think? And, and what's it going to mean for small business and uh, medium-sized businesses, those kind of companies that you talk to regularly? Uh, well, we, we, we haven't actually done anything yet. The um, Article 50 notification will go in by the end of March. Um, we've had a ruling from the Supreme Court this last week, which means that it has to go to Parliament. And if nothing else, that means that we all know a lot more about our own unwritten constitution than we ever did before. Those of us who care, care to be interested in it, it's, um, it's a plenty of material around now that's readily available. You don't have to read dusty textbooks 100 years old to learn about the British constitution anymore. Um, <clears throat> so the process will kick off um, at around the end of March. And unless there is an agreement reached by both sides to extend the process, then we will leave the EU two years after we notify them. So we could be out by the end of March 2019. And that at the moment, that at the moment would, be, would be my guess. Uh, how does this affect businesses? Um, for many, well, it depends. Uh, for some, so far, not, not at all really. If you're, if, you're, if you're conducting your business mostly in the domestic sphere, um, the British economy is held up remarkably well and you've probably not noticed much difference. If you're trading internationally, you'll have noticed a lot of difference because the pound plunged. Now, this is you know, one area where economists can be useful. Uh, we may have got the growth forecast wrong since the referendum, but we did mourn fairly starkly before the vote that if we voted to leave, the pound would fall. And it duly did. And I spoke to lots of people shortly after who said, well, it's going to bounce up again, isn't it? I said, I don't think it is. And you explain why not, and it makes perfectly good sense to them. So uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a big issue for a lot of businesses. You've now got a lot of inflation coming in through imported prices and, and big battles going on across all manner of supply chains about how those increases get shared out. Are they passed on to the end customer? And if they're not, who takes the pain back along the supply chains? All manner of businesses that import stuff, even if they're selling to domestic customers will be embroiled in those sorts of very difficult price pricing negotiations at the moment. If you're an exporter, um, it should do you good because your products should be more competitive. But you need to take care because you shouldn't count on it lasting for, it might not last for five or 10 years. So I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily want, you know, want businesses to rush off and restructure their operations and move their production locations on, on the strength of this shift in the exchange rates. But it would be a good opportunity to go out, win some new business in some new markets, win that business on price, and then when the, when the pound eventually revives, keep that, keep that business into, um, on product service and you know, uh, service quality. Mm. Yes, uh, yeah, I suppose that's really interesting and uh, important thought, isn't it? And, it's quite, it's quite uh, you were talking there about, you know, prices and costs being passed on to the consumer. And we're starting to see that, aren't we, with, uh, with uh, some, I think, was it, was it Unilever, was it recently? And, uh, um, well, we, we've had lots of, we've had lots of well-publicised spats over prices going into British supermarkets. So we had the famous Marmite Wars yes. uh, towards the end of last year. But then, you know, some companies, 
and it depends on how much power you have in the supply chain. Some companies have absolutely no problem putting their prices up. We saw the announcements from Apple, for instance. No, no problem at all. Just, just stood up and said that prices were going up, and that was the end of it. So it very much, de- it, it will very much vary from one supply chain to another how how it works out. So we like to see. You said there's been little inflation. We like to see more inflation over the next. Oh year. yes, no. I think we'll. I think we'll see more inflation because uh, not only has the pound fallen, um, but commod- but the commodity cycle globally has turned. So we're now seeing higher prices for oil and most other commodities as well. Um, so we're expecting inflation to hit somewhere between three and a half and four percent by the end of the year. That if you've got a long memory. Um, going back to the 1970s, that will seem like nothing. Mm. Uh, inflation in the UK in the mid-1970s was over 25%. Uh, I, I remember getting my first job out of university. I got a job offer in April. I got an indicative salary. And by the time I rocked up for my first day's work in October, I'd had two pay rises. And my pay had gone up about 25%. Mm. Because in those days there was absolutely no problem in keeping up with with uh, with, with um, price rises. If you were if if you were on a pension, it was really really difficult. But if you were in unionised work, it was pretty easy. You know, everybody went on strike or threatened to go on strike, and the bosses caved in. Um, but that doesn't happen now. So even with inflation at three and a half to four percent, there's no guarantee that people will will be able to bid their wages up. Um, toward in, enough to make good that so for a lot of people you could well see that by the middle end of this year they will in effect be getting worse off uh, you know their earnings will be growing on average at two point something percent inflation will be three to four percent so most people will be getting worse off they'll be earning a bit more but able to buy a bit less Right, and, and uh, so we've only got a minute to go to a commercial break, but what about interest rates then? Will they stay low or will, they, will people start getting you know, impacted on higher costs on mortgages and things like that? Um, well, interest rates is a subject I could rant on for a, for a considerable length of time, but the short answer is they will, they will almost, well, they will probably stay where they are. Hmm. Um, the Bank of England has an inflation target, but it tends to, quote, look through that target, which to you and me actually means they ignore the target uh, at most times when inflation comes in from abroad, as it usually does. And so the chances are, unless it really, really spikes, um, they, they almost certainly won't react. Well, we're going to go to commercial break again now, and, and let's, uh, let's have a, a little bit more of a chat about, uh, about Mr. Trump after the break and what that signifies to the world and economics and uh, those sorts of things. So uh, do come back after the break. I'm sure there'll be some lively conversation, and we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. What if every day was a good day for business? 
because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Mark Beresford-Smith, the Head of Economics for HSBC uh, Commercial Banking. And uh, we're obviously talking about economics today and, um, and the things that you need to know and you know, what's on our mind right now and some big things. And you know, one, of those, uh, one of those big things, we have a, a new president in the United States, Donald Trump. And I wonder, uh, what do you think um, he, that signifies that change uh, to the world, Mark? Uh, well, people have done this subject to death, but I might as well add my tuppence while we're at it. Um, I think the concern for all of us not in America is that Trump's arrival signifies a process that maybe was going on for a little while, but which we could sort of pretend wasn't happening. So ever since 1945, for those of us not living in America, there have been two things that we've been able to... Um, guarantee to to rely upon if if, if these are the things if, if we think about these things at all uh, the first is america's security guarantees to the countries of western europe and the countries of the far east um you know our, our, our defense strategies have been have been you know, intertwined with with america certain certainly over here in the uk and in western europe um and second that america has always taken a leadership role uh, in global free trade in spreading and democracy and openness and using you know, free trade as a way of as a way of promoting those values so I, I think it was starting to fray under the Obama administration I think that the decisions he made on Syria will you know, in, in time be seen as you know, as very important decisions and you know, arguably he made them for hard-headed pragmatic reasons uh, what now we get with mr. Trump is the prospect of those trend being laid bare and a lurch um, to an America first policy, uh, which is the sort of thing I don't think anybody's heard out of America since the 1920s. Yes. And bearing in mind what then happened, I think that that's why it's worrying to the rest of us. Um, and you know, in, in his first week, he looks to have been every bit as good as his word. So you know, he, he's already in a major spat with the Mexicans. Um, 
he'd upset the Chinese before he got to the White House. He's he's um, he's upset the Euro, he's upset the EU and especially the Germans. Um, for some reason, he seems to like Theresa May. So um, they're they're probably having a loving in the White House as we speak. But I don't think there's going to be any loving between Donald and Angela. Um, and, and it is all it is all rather worrying and potentially uncertain and destabilizing. Uh, and what, William, what do we think we might, as a consequence of that, see over here? I mean, what uh, what what could the impact be? Well, the, the impact the impact here is on how is on how ourselves and the rest of Europe um, think about our defence arrangements. Can we can we trust America to the degree that we once did? Uh, I am I am well aware that some European countries have been free riders of the American defence guarantee in recent years, um, and actually probably for longer than recent years. I don't think the UK has, but I think it is it is now I think you know, fairly urgent that Europe looks to its defence needs and uh, and uh, maybe uh, maybe starts to think about what 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 life would be like if you couldn't count on the Americans to come to help. Um, so I think that's uh, I, I think that's something for the broader European agenda. So, uh, probably, probably you know, maybe outside NATO. Certainly, certainly beyond certainly beyond the European Union. I think it's something we've all got to think about on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, and then, in terms of our own our own relations with America, as we're as, as we're in the process of exiting from the EU, um, what sort of relationship do we want to build with America? Now, it seems as if Donald Trump may be prepared to deal on a bilateral basis in a way that he's not prepared to deal on a multilateral basis. And as they sit in the Oval Office today, I think both leaders in a way need a deal. I think Theresa needs a deal because it would help her if she can demonstrate both to her, to her own politicians back home and also to the EU that there is life outside the EU. I think Mr. Trump has to demonstrate that he can deal with somebody that he's not simply going to be horrible to everybody. Um, otherwise, I think if uh, if you can't even get on with us, I think it's I think the um, I think international relations and the international and the international political system is going to get very disruptive and disorderly. Mm. And what do you think when we we're going back to uh, to Brexit and you know move? Move, you know, moving of people between borders, um, you know, to coming coming to work over in the UK, and what what do you think is likely that uh, the outcome might be from you know when we move out of Brexit in terms of terms and and conditions and and the impacts that might have on us as uh, employers and um, and people who do business in Europe and well already traveling around the country one of the one of the things that gets talked about most by the businesses i meet is the issues they're already starting to have on labor ability and the worries they've got going forward so the government has intimated that it's it's quite open to um, allowing high skilled people in but actually what this economy has needed in the past 10 years has been lots of low skilled people the sort of people who are going to come and clean our hotel rooms, work in our coffee shops, work in our care care homes, pick fruit on our farms. And, and those sectors are extremely worried about how they're going to get labour. So what you can expect is, is that the government will get its migration policy back. But at the end of the day, it may be that the migration numbers will not be that much smaller than they are today because businesses will simply clamour for the people to be let in. Yes. 
Um, so at the moment, um, net migration into the UK is 300 and something thousand a year. I would, uh, the government has this target, which many people, including myself, think is absurd and ridiculous, of getting that figure to under 100,000. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if in five, ten, in five, ten years' time, the figure is still running at somewhere between two and three hundred thousand. Yes, yes. And, and, and you know, from the point of view of the bigger economic picture, if this economy here in the UK has, has grown since the recession by, so it's is nine percent bigger than it was um, pre-recession. But most of that has been down to population growth. You know, income per head is not bigger. Is not that much bigger at all. Uh, we've 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 imported we've imported people rather than addressing productivity issues. Now you know, we do clearly need to do more about the productivity issues, but you need to be very aware of the risk you run if you suddenly cut off the flow of inward migration. And we got, uh, I mean, for example, the NHS, which uh, uh, my, my wife work, works in as a, a GP, and. In, yeah, I was recently recently in the hospital, a hospital with her, and it's uh, there's so many uh, people from Eastern Europe and from Africa, and they were you know really kind of running the show uh, and working extremely hard, I have to say. You know, without those people in an area which is already you know struggling for resources, you know, could it actually cope with that uh, migration figure was reduced. <coughs> Well it, well, it's certainly going to get harder for some for some businesses. It's going to push them more down the roads, down roads towards mechanisation. But, but there are a lot of businesses that you can't mechanise, mm. or certainly, or certainly not yet. And I think, I think the whole migration issue uh, feeds into a much bigger issue that I think Theresa May faces in the domestic politics here. Uh, when she stood up at Lancaster House last week to deliver her speech, which confirmed that we were going to have a hard Brexit. One of the things she said very clearly was that the British people on the 23rd of June did not vote to close the economy. They, 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 they did not vote to shut the economy up. I'm not at all sure about that. I think quite a lot of people who voted for Brexit absolutely did, did vote for a massive reduction in immigration. They did close to shut the border. Um, if they'd have been in America, they probably would have voted for Donald Trump and his Mexican wall. Um, I think that's exactly what they voted for. And the, domestically, it's going to get very interesting in the politics if it becomes apparent in five, ten years' time that the, that, that the people are still coming in, albeit not quite as great to numbers, but that actually it's not made much of a difference. And then politicians will have nobody to hide behind you know the great thing about the european union is it you know for 40 odd years we've been able to use it as a whipping boy if there's anything that goes wrong anything that anything that's not working if we can we pass the blame to europe uh, as of the day we leave the eu that will no longer be possible there will be nowhere for our politicians to hide on immigration and all sorts of other issues um, it will there it, it will be they that get held to account so they, they're going to, I think all our politicians in whatever field they work are going to feel the icy blast of accountability much more directly once we're out of the EU. That's very, very true, isn't it? Because you know, the finger often gets pointed at, pointed at Europe and, you know, we can't, uh, we, you know, we can't impact this, but you're absolutely right. They're going to be absolutely accountable and uh, uh, yeah, the spotlight will be on them. So that will be very, 
very, very interesting to see what happens, won't it? Uh, but I think also, you know, thinking in that conversation there, what you were sharing, there, you know, there's some, you know, away from, away from London, you know, in some of the, you know, I'm from the north of England, and, uh, you know, in some of those areas, people have seen a lot of migration and a lot of change in the sort of culture and the people that they're mixing with, and you know, supermarkets opening for, for Polish people and that sort of thing. Their their communities have become very different, and uh, you know, we're kind of a bit out of touch about that. Maybe how that feels to some people. Um, I, we we we've clearly had a problem in the UK with <coughs> the um, gap between London and the rest of the country, and I, I think you know, again, I think you you have to lay it at the at the door of government that they probably haven't done enough over the years to to help um, migrants um, assimilate. Now, in, in a lot of places, it just happened. I, I don't actually think there are many problem areas, and <coughs> it's quite interesting that. A lot of the areas of the country away from London that voted most heavily for Brexit actually have hardly any migrants. So it's it's mm. in many cases it's the fear of migrants rather than the reality that drove them to vote the way they did. Um, but I've no doubt there you know there is more needs to be done on 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 um, you know, getting a more even distribution of economic growth across the UK. And I think I think our previous Chancellor, uh, Chancellor George Osborne had exactly the right idea for the Northern Powerhouse. So we, 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 we are now beginning to see uh, big regional initiatives, Northern Powerhouse, Midlands Engine. We've got uh, regional devolution deals uh, getting done in some parts of the country where the local politicians can manage not to fight among each other. Uh, so, you know, some of that is happening and, 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 it, all, and it all helps. But you know, the the fact that the, the, there's a there's a huge north south divide here is not something that happened last year or five years ago. It's been it's been it's, it's been happening for at least the past forty years. Yes, yes, and uh, you know places possibly uh, you know possibly frosty as we get further up into to Scotland and the like. Um, uh, you know, it's a uh, very 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 uh, interesting and challenging times. And you know, and uh, I just. Before we go, because it's got about a minute left, so I wonder if you've got a final message that you'd like to share with us. I think for anybody in business, uh, these are going to be quite uncertain times. Uh, I, I think the British economy will fare fairly well, in actual fact. Uh, I think there will be a slowdown, but I don't think it will be severe. But I think there will be. There's a lot of political uncertainty, in particular, watch Europe this year, and you know be very alive to shifts, particularly in commodity prices and currency markets. Um, uh, one sense, uh, that suits me fine, because if all of these things are up in the air and changing a lot, it gives me lots to talk about and it gives me plenty of work. <laughs> well, well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I found it fascinating talking with you. Um, you you've really you've inspired me. Uh, so I've seen you, you know, speak and the way that you, you articulate and you know, share the situation and, and, and the, the story of what's happening at the moment. So, you know, a huge thank you for, for joining us today. And, uh, you know, thank you to HSBC for, uh, you know, engaging with uh, you being on the show. Um, really, really do appreciate it. Um, so, um, you know, wish you well. I, I also just want thank to say... Thank you very much. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Maybe we'll get you back again um, on the show at some point in the future. Um, so thank you. Um, I also just want to say uh, on next week's show, we have Mark Levy. Uh, Mark is an expert on uh, positioning and a fascinating guy, um, even puts on um, 
magic shows in Las Vegas and all sorts of things besides helping people uh, around their sort of positioning and, and developing, uh, helping their businesses become more compelling, you know, the way they tell stories, um, the way that they maybe do their marketing campaigns and that sort of thing. So we're going to talk about how to be compelling next week. Uh, Mark's been on the show before. He's absolutely fantastic. Um, so um, we look forward to um, speaking to you again next week. And once again, huge thank you to Mark Beresford-Smith and to HSBC. It's been an absolute pleasure this afternoon. We thank you for listening to the Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more.